I just want to jump in really quickly to ask a very important favour. We know that most of you who listen to No Bullshit Leadership haven't yet hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite podcast player. This is how the podcast grows. And even though we've already got a pretty decent global following, we're only scratching the surface of what's possible. We started this podcast over five years ago with the lofty ambition of improving the quality of leaders globally. So if you've got any benefit at all from listening to the podcast, I'd ask you to just take a moment, literally a moment, to hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite player. The world needs more no-bullshit leaders, and you can help us to make that happen. Back to the episode. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership, or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 166 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, don't mollycoddle your people. They're paid to do a job. It's been an interesting month or two in the US, as many people are returning to office life, and the debate about the merits of remote work versus on-site co-location is raging. This is exposing some real issues for leaders, many of whom are struggling to set the appropriate standards and policies on everything from whether people should be vaccinated in order to work for their company, right through to whether employees should be allowed to turn their cameras off during Zoom meetings. Now, the Zoom meeting question in particular has generated some interesting debate in the wake of a research study conducted by some fairly reputable academics, which was published recently in the Journal of Applied Psychology. The study even got endorsement from Adam Grant, 
organizational psychologist from the Wharton Business School, and New York Times bestselling author of titles such as Think Again and Give and Take. Since then, I've done a few interviews on regional TV for several US networks to talk about why leaving the camera on is so important from a leadership and culture perspective. Now, you may recall I released an episode of No Bullshit Leadership a couple of months ago that deals with some of these issues. That was episode 154, Return to Work Rules, uh, or in fact, Return to Work Rules, okay, uh, where I developed a framework which M turned into a handy downloadable for how to think through these issues. Today, I'm going to go a little deeper into some of the ways these issues can affect you and your people and give you some ideas for how to actually solve them. So we'll start by asking the big question. Zoom cameras, on or off? I'll then give you a striking example from my experience of what can happen when employees try to dictate their conditions. And I'll finish with a few tips to help you maintain perspective on how you as a leader should best manage the people in your team when you have to make hard choices. So let's get into it. Some research findings were recently released by seven academics from the University of Arizona and some other institutions. It was basically about leaving cameras on or off during Zoom meetings, and their findings was that leaving cameras on can be detrimental. They've called it Zoom fatigue. Now, the implication is that apparently you get better results from people if they can leave their cameras off during meetings. Apparently, people become more fatigued after a day of meetings with the camera on versus the camera off. And this is supposedly felt more strongly by women, I assume this means as opposed to men, and by newer employees who don't have the same tenure and relationships inside the organisation. Now when I look at this study, there are some obvious limitations. The research only applied to one company, and this was a company that employs mainly call centre staff. Also, this company has had a cameras optional policy for a long period of time. Now what the research overlooks is that perhaps this is a symptom thing. There's a lot going on here. When you think about work from home and remote work, it's a lot more than just your Zoom meetings that make you fatigue. Some people are homeschooling. Many are dealing with loss of their social network uh, or their inability to communicate with a close peer group at work. Sharing a confined space with a partner is also an issue when perhaps they don't get on so well. The whole context has changed. So taking an isolated issue like whether your Zoom camera is on or off won't necessarily be representative of the deep problem. And yes, I do know how statistical analysis and regression testing works, but I think any correlation here has to be wafer thin. Another obvious limitation is that the research study only talks about fatigue. There's no link to performance or productivity. And they measured two things during the meetings, changes in voice and engagement. Now, the findings showed that it doesn't affect voice or engagement, whether you have your Zoom camera on or off, but it impacts what they called within-person fatigue. That sounds just a trifle dodgy to me. And when it comes to the special mention for women and your employees, there's no control group to determine whether this was the case in office-based meetings before we all learned how to log on to Microsoft Teams. But with Zoom meetings, and now having given a number of virtual keynote presentations, I'd certainly concede that it takes a lot more energy to be expressive over a video conference link than it does in a face-to-face -face context. So what have we learned in the last 18 months or so? Whereas it's relatively easy to work from home, it's much harder to lead from home. And the things that get lost are pretty important. The first is communication. It's much tougher. 
And whether you have your zoom camera on or off, let's face it, it's never going to be as good as the real thing. It's much harder to undertake talent management and succession planning. And that's all important for the future of the organisation. Now, you're not going to see the cracks immediately, but you'll certainly see them over the fullness of time. And the third thing is culture and accountability. You don't have the same ability to get the team dynamic and culture going the way you would when you have people in the same location. And accountability, particularly when it's spread across different people, is really, really hard to monitor. Now, we know we can survive in full work from home mode, but how long can we sustain it without finding significant issues? More on this one in a minute. My stance is, when you communicate with people, body language matters. As a leader, you want to be able to gain as much input as possible in every communication, including any non-verbal cues. This is why video is important. If someone is struggling, you're much more likely to pick up on it. And as a leader, you want to know if your people have issues. Video conferencing will always be inferior to face-to-face. -face. You can't read the energy, and you can't see the nuances of facial expressions. And look, call me crazy, but were meetings ever optional in normal work circumstances? When the boss called a meeting, we actually thought it was a good idea to turn up. We didn't say, I'm not sure if I feel like it today. I'm having a bad hair day. We turned up regardless because that was, oh yeah, a requirement of employment. Now, people's varying comfort levels with how they present was always there. But now we seem to think this should be different when we're working from home. Maybe the study's accurate. If people turn their cameras off, they won't be quite so fatigued because they don't need to pay attention. With the camera off and the mute button on, people frequently aren't engaged with the meeting, but busy doing other things. We should probably stop looking at symptoms though and look at the root cause of these problems. Is it possible that we're having too many meetings that don't deliver enough value? Do we have too many attendees in each meeting that actually don't need to be there? And are too many insecure bosses having endless check-ins just to make sure? So the Zoom research study was fun and interesting, but let's get a bit more serious. The concept of employee choice is a really important one. Choice can be a crucial factor in autonomy. And I'm a massive believer in autonomy as long as there's clear and unequivocal accountability to go along with it. But too much choice is bad. And you certainly don't want people to feel as though they can simply opt in or out of things, depending on their own personal choice, when a leader thinks something's important. The tail starts to wag the dog, and the balance of power shifts dangerously towards short-term gratification, rather than long-term value and sustainability. But many leaders feel as though they have to mollycoddle their people to keep them happy and to accede to their wishes. Now, I've taken to using this great example because it just paints such a clear picture. What happens if one of your young children decides that all they want to eat is ice cream and you accede to that wish and you let them eat ice cream three meals a day? Well, the first day, couple of days, couple of weeks are going to be awesome and they're going to have so much fun. You're going to be happy and they're going to be happy. But look down the track a year later, two years later, they're going to be morbidly obese. They're going to have terribly low self-esteem and they're going to be bullied at school. So what we do in the short term doesn't necessarily feed into our long-term objectives, and we all know that. But we have to also be careful not to breed an entitlement culture. Employees dictating to leaders what they will and won't do. It reminds me of a tricky case I had many years ago. I had an executive role in a company, 
and had hired a C-level leader below me to run what was probably the biggest transformation project in my part of the business. To cut a long story short, the person I hired couldn't meet the standard I was setting. Now remember, weak leaders lower the standard to meet the performance, but strong leaders lift the performance to meet the standard. And even back then, I tended to be a fairly strong leader. It became obvious to me in the first few months that even my close support and mentoring wasn't having any impact on this individual's performance. It was a step up for him, and it appeared that he couldn't make that step. Now, the core of the issue was that he couldn't get out of the detail for long enough to see the big picture. Not a good look in a really senior role with a broad reform agenda. If only I'd known back then the importance of pre-employment aptitude and psych testing. I'm sure that his lack of abstract reasoning capability would have been identified. Anyhow, sensing that I was becoming more and more prescriptive, he became extremely erratic with his people. And I had the unusual situation where a number of good people below him broke the chain of command to come to me directly and tell me about what was going on in that team. Now, of course, I had many conversations with this leader about his performance until the real crunch meeting came. I didn't pull any punches, and by the end of our session, he would have been pretty well versed on what he needed to do differently. I sent him away to think about possible ways forward and agreed to meet with him three or four days later to check in. As it turns out, this guy knew how to play the game. He could see the sword of Damocles suspended above him. He saw the writing on the wall, basically. So he decided to no-show for our next meeting, and instead, he lodged an application for sick leave based on, wait for it, job stress. Now, at this stage, he'd only been in the role for three months or so. This is all pretty routine so far, not the first time someone's fallen back on a defensive stress when simply being asked to do their job to the required standard. And you need to be really careful with these situations, as the medical condition may well be genuine, despite any indicators to the contrary. Whether someone's condition is true or fabricated is completely irrelevant. When a medical professional provides a written opinion on someone's health, that's the thing you have to observe and respond to. Besides, as a leader, your duty of care overrides everything else. So I treated it as if his stress claim was 100% genuine and put plans in place to manage his return to work accordingly. That meant he could return to the job only after a full medical clearance. And at that point, his performance would be under the spotlight again. Now what he did next surprised even me. This guy decided to double down and go on the attack. He knew that I couldn't continue with the performance management issue because he was, for all intents and purposes, unfit for work. So he went around me and started to work the HR channels in the organisation. First, he alleged that I was harassing him and I should be removed from my role, relieving him of the inconvenience of having to report to someone who set high expectations for behaviour and performance. But fortunately, even HR found that one laughable, so he didn't get very far with it. Then, when he found he couldn't discredit me, he started to impose all sorts of other conditions, with a very explicit threat of legal action against the company if the company didn't accede to his demands. His basis for the threatened action? If the organisation didn't do exactly as he asked, he would allege that he was being discriminated against based on his health condition. Fortunately, the company held firm, and he was eventually freed up to be successful in another organisation. But this was a critical moment in the formation of that company's culture. Lots of people had visibility of what was going on. If people are allowed to leverage what they think is an entitlement or right, and call the shots based on that, companies can end up making some really poor decisions. If this one-off case had become the cultural norm, 
it would have had a profound impact on company culture. The danger is that a company can become overly risk-averse and in doing so, exceed to employee demands in order to avoid any conflict with them. This is really often the case when the senior leadership can sense things like the threat of strike action or the threat of legal action or concern about possible reputational damage. But more often than not, all this does is to give the inmates the keys to the asylum. Since then, I've seen many cases like this, and they've taught me an important lesson. Sometimes, people will feel entitled to something based on their personal situation. I don't like Mondays. I have difficulty getting up in the mornings. Or I want to have enough time to run my lifestyle business and don't really want to work this hard for the company. None of this is relevant as a leader. Sure, you need to know your people's circumstances, their likes and dislikes, the things that put them under pressure, uh, the things that motivate them, their long-term ambitions and goals, their strengths and weaknesses. But your obligation is crystal clear. Organisation first, team second, the individuals in the team third. And if you can manage to do that, you won't have to worry about serving yourself. It will already be done in spades along the way. Serve the interests of the organisation first and you will never regret it. Sometimes it's just hard to know which of your many stakeholders should take priority at any given point. But if you mollycoddle your people and just do whatever they want for fear of upsetting them, you're likely to get poor outcomes, especially in the longer term. And that's really bad for your people too when the organisation becomes uncompetitive and unprofitable. Think closures and layoffs. The inevitable future of a poorly run business. Okay, with any issues where you have to decide between what the employees want and what's best for the business, I'm going to assume that you already understand the process and framework for making these types of decisions. But just to recap, uh, particularly episode 154, there's a simple process to follow. So the first thing is, make sure whatever you do is lawful. Number two, make sure it's consistent with your organisation's values and your own. Number three, Make sure you're fulfilling your duty of care to your people. And this means your duty of care to the majority as opposed to the whims of any one individual. Number four, make sure you're fulfilling necessary operational requirements. And number five, make your decision on a risk basis. So for example, there's a potential trade-off between not getting optimum performance for the business with the risk of people resigning. And to understand this risk, you need to work out how many people your decision is going to piss off and whether they're the people you want to keep, your top talent. Now, making the decision is one thing, but how do you handle this from a relationship perspective? How do you not erode the trust you've established with your team? And how do you strike the balance between the company's requirements and the desires of the individual? Well, the number one rule is, yeah, I'm going to say it again, don't mollycoddle your people. Don't pander to their every desire. That's just stupid. They are paid to do a job, and it's your job to make sure they do it. Yes, you want to motivate and encourage them. Yes, you want to give them autonomy. Yes, you want them to be happy and fulfilled in their work. Yes, you want to generate loyalty. And yes, you want to maintain a strong psychological contract. But when it comes to issues where the individual desires to part from the needs of the organisation, you only have one way forward. What's best for the company? And in determining what's best for the company, you have to make an assessment of the impacts on employees 
when they don't get what they want. So here are a few steps that will make the process manageable for you, if not easy. So first and foremost, before you do anything else, listen. You want to be able to make a good assessment of a few things. How big an issue is it for your people? Why is it an issue? Think like you would in any negotiation. How can I give you what you want while still getting what I want? Where are the rub points where you can capture value without impacting my value proposition and vice versa? Remember, we're trying to increase the size of the pie that's got to be divided up between us. So always look for ways to satisfy the other party and give them what they want if you possibly can. Number two, determine the risks properly. What risks are there if you choose to make a decision that doesn't coincide with your people's wishes? And you do this like any risk assessment. You have to make an assessment on likelihood and impact. How likely is it that a certain outcome, like for example disgruntled staff resigning, will occur and what are the consequences to the business if it does? This is part of any decision making process but you've got to be really careful here. Many leaders I know will overplay the potential likelihood and impact of an exodus of people. Why? Because it's a convenient rationalisation and an excuse to not do the things that might upset people because then they mightn't like you. Respect before popularity, people. You need to rid yourselves of this scourge of wanting to be liked by your people. Number three, talk to other leaders, above, beside and below. If you're not at the top of the organisation with unfettered decision rights, you want to know your decision is in step with other leaders. And you want to know that the leaders above you have the appetite to execute on your decision and support you if things get a little hairy further down the track. This is an exercise in influencing and alignment. And these are the subtle skills of senior leadership that are so critical to your success. Number four, make the decision. Now this sounds really obvious, but I know a lot of leaders who hedge their bets and make half decisions. Maybe I won't address it yet. Maybe I'll just deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Maybe I'll just see how it goes for a while, or maybe I'll wait for someone above me to decide for me. Nope. Make a call. That's what leaders are paid to do, so procrastinating and avoiding doesn't help anyone. And finally, communicate your decision to the team. If you make any decision that affects people, don't send an email. Do it face-to-face, in groups, and individually when necessary. Explain the decision-making process. Explain what options you considered and why you chose to make the decision you did. But remember, tone is really important here. You're not looking for approval. You're not looking for consensus. You're merely seeking to give your people an understanding. Why? Because, first of all, it'll make any decision so much easier to implement if your people can see why it has been made. And let's face it, you want to be seen as a rational boss because that inspires confidence. Tying all this up, there are many issues and situations you'll come up against where you have to make a trade-off between what individuals want and what the organisation needs. Don't fall into the trap of mollycoddling your people and then rationalising in your own head why it was a good business decision to do so. It never is. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 166. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So if you haven't already rated this and reviewed it on Apple Podcasts, I don't know why not. Get onto it, guys. 
I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, getting ahead of the next crisis. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. 